Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers the P.T. Anderson film Inherent Vice, based on the Thomas Pynchon novel. This was a movie I first watched a few years ago, and this recording was made actually right after that first viewing. So it's very much a first impression. Does not go down all the many rabbit holes and, and things that there are to discuss about this movie. Fair warning, it's just a short initial reaction. Um, also talking about just my general kind of engagement with Anderson as a director who I've found fascinating and challenging at times. And uh, actually, to my surprise, when I looked at it, had not discussed prior to this uh, discussion. So that was that was uh, fun to dive into. And I'm actually looking forward to revisiting this film at some time, listening to it again as I was preparing for this podcast, uh, you know, because now it's been a couple years. This was originally recorded for patrons. Uh, just made me really want to dig into it again. And I always invite feedback, but I would particularly love to hear people's thoughts on this movie because uh, this, I think, may may be my favorite P.T. Anderson film that I've seen. And uh, I still, a few years after this recording, when I said it in here too, have not seen Phantom Threat. So that, that, that caveat in there. The previous episode was on the film High Rise. It was part of my Left of the Movies series where... I discuss films with a political topic and from that angle. And uh, elsewhere on online since that last episode, I've actually concluded a big project for my patrons on uh, patreon.com slash lost in the movies. I finished my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast on the original series, uh, the seasons one and two of Twin Peaks. I had three episodes come out in quick succession. Uh, well, more than three episodes, but three, uh, I covered three episodes. Uh, season two, episode 20, uh, also known as The Path to the Black Lodge, or episode 27. Season two, episode 21, also known as Miss Twin Peaks, and episode 28. And then the season two finale, season two, episode 22, Beyond Life and Death, or episode 29. That last one, covering what many consider the very best episode of Twin Peaks, is actually split into three parts because it was so long I couldn't upload the files all as one piece. Plus, I was trying to get those parts out as quickly as possible. But the total runs nearly six hours. So that's one you would want to split into parts and listen to. But there's so much to dig into and deep dive into that uh, that hour of television that it ended up being six times as long as the actual episode. And then finally, on my site, I've been doing my Mad Men Season 4 viewing diary. It just concluded a couple days ago with episode 12, Blowing Smoke, last week, and episode 13, Tomorrowland, this week. That was an interesting trajectory where Don Draper's personal and professional life go in um, new directions, we'll just say. I'm, I'm doing this as a spoiler-free episode guide. I'm actually watching the series for the first time, so I don't know what's coming next usually. And I'll let you appreciate it that way as well if you're reading along. One thing I forgot to mention last time... I mentioned that I was putting up uh, Twin Peaks videos, short videos that were like excerpts from an earlier uh, video essay chapter that I did. And I forgot to mention that I did the first one a few weeks ago on the anniversary of the season three premiere. That was called Twin Peaks, the Anti-Pilot, video essay on season three, parts one and two, Journey Through Twin Peaks. And it's just up on YouTube. So all of that will be linked below in the show notes. As always, you can go check them out. Now let's move on to Inherent Vice. sure did its work. They didn't score any dope that day, but somehow, suddenly, it didn't matter. 
It was weird that in the limited space of a postcard, Shasta should have chosen to remember that one day in the rain. It had stuck with Doc, too, even though it was late in their time together, when she was already halfway out the door. Inherent Vice came out four years ago now, in 2014. I thought it was more recent. I'd seen a lot of references to it and people using it as avatars and stuff, and I thought it was within the past couple of years, but... No, it's been around for a while at this point. The last P.T. Anderson film that I saw was The Master, and uh, that was 2012, so actually this was not long after. It seems like he takes longer between films than this, but these two were almost uh, back-to-back, both with Joaquin Phoenix. I haven't seen Phantom Thread yet either, so this was the first film I'd seen since The Master. It's about a detective, also it seems possibly a doctor. He works at a doctor's offices and everyone calls him Doc. I don't know what the deal with that was. I didn't quite pick up on that. And he's also, of course, uh, a hippie. Or, you know, at least everybody around him seems to think so. Although a hippie who collaborates with law enforcement to the extent he does um, might be looked at askance by some others in their community. Uh, But he's definitely a stoner. He's high all the time. It's what characterizes him to most viewers. The film opens with an ex-lover, Chasta, visiting him at his beach house, starting to let him know a little bit about a, a plot that she's tangentially involved with. And then she appears only a couple more times throughout the movie, although her presence haunts the whole film. During the film, he's trying to figure out what's going on with this this plot he's he gets a little bit embroiled with it as well on many different fronts it's sort of hard to summarize here it's from a thomas pynchon novel but clearly he's influenced heavily by uh raymond chandler's take on the detective genre and there's an infamous story about the big sleep where howard hawks and i think perhaps william faulkner and uh, several of the other people working on that script they were all trying to figure out who killed one of the victims in the film And they couldn't figure it out between the three or four of them. So they finally called up Raymond Chandler. They said, sorry, we, you know, we couldn't figure it out just from reading the book. Who killed this guy? Raymond Chandler said, I have no idea. (laughs) So it's hard to summarize this plot as it would be for any mystery, L.A. noir. That said, I found it relatively easy to follow. I think the outcome of it seemed to be that there was a corrupt cabal with some FBI collaboration that was both running drugs and then funneling people through therapy, getting them on both ends and using a dental outfit to get people hooked or at least get them their fix. It's got a great cast. Some of the people, interestingly enough, I, I didn't quite, I couldn't quite place them. I knew... I recognized them, but couldn't figure out who they were. And then the end credits revealed uh, Jenna Malone was one. Eric Roberts was another. It was like, oh, okay. Martin Short, it took me probably a good minute to figure out. But that was just a brilliant, brilliant cameo on his part as this decadent uh, dentist who is just living a life of total debauchery. And uh, man, he just nailed it. It was great. As with any of these types of films, any of these types of stories, really, the point is less the outcome than the journey. The characters that are met, the suspects that are encountered, the situations that he gets into. I have to keep coming back to Chandler because there's just so many so many elements of, of his films in here, I think. Particularly, I would say, The Long Goodbye, Farewell, My Lovely, and perhaps The Big Sleep. Um, with Fermo, my lovely, there's a whole sequence 
where the detective gets strung up. He's held prisoner and hallucinating. And there's another another story, I can't remember which one, that involves a dentist, I'm pretty sure, too. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a menagerie of all that stuff. Now, as a film, watching the film at the beginning, I thought right away, okay, there's there's a lot of long goodbye in here. You have this 70s, little bit of a burnout figure who's also a detective, blurring those two worlds together. By the long goodbye... I mean the uh, Robert Altman film adaptation of it, because the book does take place in the 50s. It's sort of still part of that milieu. And I have a lot of thoughts about that adaptation, which I won't get into here. As the film went along, very quickly I was surprised that probably even more than The Long Goodbye, it really evoked The Big Lebowski. The turn towards Lebowski as farce surprised me because I watched the first scene a little separate from the rest of the movie. Uh, It was the other night. I thought that I would have uh, more time and I kind of started the film and I said, oh, you know, I can't watch it now. But I was really hooked by that first scene and just the sort of languorous style and that mood. There's also an interesting relationship between uh, Bigfoot, the LAPD cop, and Doc, the main character, where they have this antagonistic relationship. But they still seem to need each other and feed off of each other. And there's a fascinating scene at the end of the film. You know, Anderson always seems to have these moments where just the narrative breaks and it becomes some strange tangent. There's actually a few of those in this film, but certainly you think of like There Will Be Blood at the end of the scene, the bowling alley that everybody quotes all the time, references, and Z's is like, you know, the quintessential scene in the movie but it's such a strange scene. I remember watching the film at the time when it came out and just thinking, what in the world are we doing here? Where did this come from? This, how, how is this in this film? It baffled me, and that's not an uncommon experience with P.T. Anderson, but we'll get back to that in a moment. But this scene at the end, uh, Bigfoot breaks through the door, storms in, smokes a joint with Doc, which you would never think he would do before. He's the ultimate square, just straight out of Dragnet. And then he eats the joint, and he starts eating the grass, and he pours the whole plate in his mouth, and he leaves the room. And before that, they speak in sync. And uh, he says something about, you know, I'm not your brother. And Doc says, well, you you may need a keeper. And uh, that just totally exploits this idea of these guys as... uh, two sides of the same coin somehow that they're in yang thing going on i don't know where that comes from in the book if that's teased out more in the book if this scene was a complete addition to the book if it's not in it i'd be fascinated to know it seems like it could be something that he would add completely off the cuff because it it feels like one of those moments pt anderson's always baffled me on some level initially i was kind of frustrated with his work. I would say really in some ways all the way up to There Will Be Blood. The Master was, I don't know if I'd describe it as like making peace with it or what. I've always been attracted to the avant-garde. Films that feel like you're inside of a dream and you can't explain them. There's, they're very irrational. Something like Robert Altman's Three Women um, is a good example of that. Or a lot of Tarkovsky's films. What baffled me about Anderson and made him something someone that I've had to struggle with. And and I think this is the way some people feel about David Lynch, which is interesting that, that he's clicked more readily with me. This feeling like that there's supposed to be something there that's making more sense than it's making. The old Bob Dylan lyric, there's something happening here and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? And I'm always kind of Mr. Jones and the 
P.T. Anderson film scratching my head. It's not just a completely irrational, whimsical non sequitur. It seems like it's pointing to something that I'm supposed to understand and that it's assuming that I understand and it's, it's just bewildering. When I saw The Master, I actually had a, a slightly similar experience to this in as much as I saw one scene before I saw the rest of the movie. In that case, I attended this lecture that was at a um, L.A. cinema when I lived there a few years ago. This guy was presenting all these clips and talking about the direction. It was pretty fascinating. And he did a uh, clip from The Master. It was the one where the character is sitting on a bench with a with his young lover, I think he's on leave from World War II. He's about to go off. It's in like Lynn, Massachusetts. Then it clicked with me. Whatever it was, it clicked with me. And I saw, I connected with the, the whatever the substream was that he was uh, tapping into there. And then when I saw it on DVD, I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. But whatever that was had slipped away from me. And I feel like I've been doing myself a bit of a disservice by not seeing as many of P.T. Anderson's films on the big screen as I can, because I think he is one of those artists that's not necessarily about specifically what's on screen, but there's an atmosphere to it that you need the bigness to soak in. This might possibly be my favorite of of his that I've seen so far. I, I need to digest it. I need to return to it. There's such a richness to this film, to the cinematography. I mentioned before Long Goodbye and Big Lebowski. Both of those are no slouches in, in the visual department in very different ways, like the bleary photography of, of Sigmund on Long Goodbye, and then, of course, Roger Deakins on The Big Lebowski. The work of Robert Elswit in this film might be my favorite of all three of those. It's just, man, it's it's gorgeous. And, of course, it's not just the lighting and the, the stock that they're using... Um, although, god damn, the, the lighting is just gorgeous in this film. There's a reference at one point to James Wong Howe, the famous cinematographer, says, oh, he, delight, he, he designed the lighting in our house or something. And, you know, this is a film that's completely deserving of that reference. But there's just a, a beautiful, limpid quality to it. You really can just feel the film stock at work. It's, it's beautiful, gorgeous to look at. In a way, it almost seems like with film becoming sort of a scarcer commodity now, almost on the verge of extinction, it's becoming somehow more tangible. Like every film you see feels super, super like a film. Now, that could just be because the people who are making the effort to use it are the ones who really, really know how to exploit it. When every TV movie or whatever was shot on film, then it just was easier to take for granted. It reminds me a little of the line from Chinatown, politicians, public buildings, and whores all get respectable if they last long enough. And in a way, that's almost true of film as a medium. You know, it was this brush-off novelty when it began. Over time, it could be taken for granted. Now that it's in its very much the absolute sunset of its years as actual film, as celluloid, there's just an unbelievable grandeur to it. It seems so much larger than life in a way. Of course, Chinatown is a film that also bears some relationship to Inherent Vice. Not terribly much, I think. Certainly not as much as Long Goodbye and Big Lebowski as L.A. LA noir riffs go. Even more so than that crazy scene at the end where Bigfoot comes in and eats his marijuana. There's another scene earlier in the film where he also has an unexpected guest who comes in. And that's when Chasta comes back. And there's this just long, long, incredible shot where she's kind of teasing him and she lies down on top of him and she's talking about 
uh, the other men she's been with on the boat, the Golden Fang, that they were always talking about. That was just an incredible, kind of jarring scene. And again, this was something that felt like it almost came out of nowhere. In a way, it was a little bit of an epiphany in the sense that I think it explains to me somewhat what, what P.T. Anderson is doing with these other scenes. And again, as far as I know, this could be in the book. It probably is. But there's something very distinctly him about the way he handles it, the tone he treats it in. You know, if you want to draw a comparison to a film, that scene in Mulholland Drive where Naomi Watts goes to the audition and suddenly she's like in a different movie. It felt a little bit like that because up till that point, it had been way more comedic than I expected this film. Much more lighthearted in a way. And I'd gotten that sense in the first scene that maybe this was going to be something more melancholy. And that's with that character, whenever she enters into it, even just tangentially, when he's talking about her, seeing a picture, there's just sort of bittersweet feeling of melancholy and uh, angst. And when she comes back into the film fully, she brings that with her. And this is a performance by Catherine Waterston, who I'm, I'm got to think is Sam Waterston's daughter because they have a certain similarity in their face. But she just knocks it out of the park. It's an incredible scene disturbing in a way and um it just takes the character in this entirely different direction this genial stoner suddenly suddenly becomes full of fury and frustration and longing so what i'm saying is it made me see how in a lot of pt anderson's work i feel like there are these moments where there's something to hook onto and he hooks onto it and lets him take lets it take him right out of the film if necessary because he isn't actually leaving the film. It's still part of the film. And when he comes back to the film, it's still there. And it sits there kind of uncomfortably. And you don't know what to make of it. It doesn't just feel like a flourish. It feels like there's something really there. And that brings me perfectly to the final quote of the movie. Which is on screen after the credits. You know, this is why I always stay through the credits. You never know what you're going to see. or uh, Sometimes you just need that space to soak it in. But in this case, there actually was something to see. And it refers to an event we've talked about a lot. That's May 68. I mentioned a piece of uh, May 68 graffiti that said it's forbidden to forbid. And this is another one sort of in a similar spirit that might even be the epigraph to the book From Revolution to Ethics. So this is a nice coincidence. And it says, beneath the cobblestones, the beach. And I think that's what P.T. Anderson is doing with these moments in these films. At the time that I recorded this podcast, afterwards I went, I listened to, and I read some other stuff, and I found one thing really interesting that I wanted to share, so I kind of shared it in a separate part of the podcast, so I'll do that again here. I didn't really discuss its social historical context uh, in the present day so much, and I, after recording this, I was listening to some podcasts about it, and I found a really interesting one, which I'm going to link below. This podcast, after talking for quite a while about it from a literary postmodern point of view, which I honestly found kind of frustrating in some ways, they got into it, some of its connections to the present day with police brutality and um, resurgence and uh, struggling under capitalism and identity and things like that. And I thought that part was really fascinating. So I'll mention that below with the, the time code where that can be found. And once again, would love to hear any feedback that you have on this film and maybe some of the other noirs that are discussed. I actually have a big uh, noir subject coming up soon on my Patreon. I didn't mention it at the outset because it's not out yet, but it will be coming out in the next couple of weeks uh, covering 
the films The Big Sleep in relation, or the film The Big Sleep in relation to uh, Twin Peaks. That's going to be coming up on my Patreon site if you want to check that out. I'll put the link in the show notes when it's ready. So, um, you know, it's it's not... It's not up yet, but if you're listening to this in like late June or any time after that, late June 2021 in the future, you can go down and click on that and go right through to it. This is the end of season two of Lost in the Movies uh, public podcast. I'm doing seasons that take like a week off after Christmas or around Christmas and a week off around the 4th of July, and I decided to kind of split things up that way. Uh, If you notice, the first season had the theme of Ethan Hawke films. Uh, All the films that were not part of like the left of the movies or Twin Peaks cinema discussions were Ethan Hawke films. This second season was more random. I just chose some movies that I'd discussed before and wanted to share with patrons. The third season is going to be interesting. This is where things are going to get a little more ambitious in a way because I am going to start in October branching off the left of the movies and Twin Peaks Cinema Podcast will become their own streams that you can subscribe to to hear future episodes of that. I wanted to tease it and introduce it throughout this past year, but and a few more will continue in the summer as well, but eventually in October they're going to go off in their own direction, and Lost in the Movies will continue as an every other week podcast, but it's going to alternate between um, like a random film that is either part of like an ongoing concept like I did with the Ethan Hawke films or just something random. It's going to alternate between that once a month and also once a month a new release film that I'm seeing either streaming or in a cinema, which is an activity. I mean, first of all, because of the pandemic, I haven't done that much in the past year. But even before that, the teens, I just fell off a cliff in terms of my uh, theatrical viewing I, and just new releases in general. I mean, it's funny to think that a decade I lived through in my 20s and 30s uh, was actually, I've seen less films from that than I've probably seen from like the 1920s or 30s. I just was, my habits were receded so much. I was focusing a lot on Twin Peaks, other older movies. So this is going to be an interesting return in a way to keeping up with contemporary film. So that's going to be fun. So I'll be doing that once a month on this podcast from October on, so about halfway through this coming season, and uh, and then the other half will be more random films. And then next year I have another idea in store, but we'll save that for, for later. Uh, I'll also be starting to publicly release Lost in Twin Peaks episodes in shorter form uh, in October as well. So October's really going to be the branching off point, but the season three will start. I would be posting an episode on June 30th, but like I said, I'm going to take that week off for the holiday and not come back until two weeks after that. So July 14th will be the next episode. And uh, here is a preview of what I'm going to be discussing there. I'm excited about a lot of the films I'm bringing out for this uh, coming summer as the kickoff to the new season. to do something substantial in order to get the attention of the clubs. Why? Because they're exclusive and fun and they lead to a better life. People want to go on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles. I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. The site got 2,200 hits within two hours? Thousand. 22,000. 